Today I'm here with Nathan Cox of Two Prime. He is the co-founder of the hedge fund Two Prime. Nate, how's it going? Oh, it's great, man. It's really great to be here. And thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm really excited to to talk to you. And uh, yeah, it's been you know obviously a, a wild time in crypto, so it's uh, great to connect. Absolutely, yeah. We we've talked for a long time, but this is the first time actually connecting face to face, at least virtually. So really excited about that. So Nate, yeah. I was thinking maybe we could start with a little bit of your background and your previous career before starting Two Prime and how you got into trading. Sure. Yeah, it's been a, a long and uh, a strange road. Um, I got into derivatives trading when I was really young. It was sort of a happenstance. My parents got me into it when I was like 16 and 17. They went to this derivative options trading class and um, it didn't stick for them, but it stuck for me. So I went on and through college was sort of uh, trading in personal accounts and got a degree in economics and then ultimately went on and traded uh, on a derivative desk for uh, a medium-sized family office in Phoenix. And uh, we did lots of like binary events. So I kind of got a taste of what it was like to trade volatility. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think like any vol trader, you go through all these sort of phases of like, uh, I want to be a long vol trader, then I want to be a short vol trader. Uh, maybe it's the best to be a combination of both. So going through um, really sitting on the professional derivative desk, I really kind of cut my teeth um, as a ball trader and uh, got a real sense of when the right time was to be both long and short ball. Uh, and then from that, uh, ultimately spun out and started my own fund with uh, two other partners and uh, managed that for six years. Uh, called Prana Capital, also out of Phoenix. And we went from doing binary events on all kinds of equity derivatives to getting very narrowly focused on the ball space as an asset class. So we went into the VIX and VIX derivatives, so all the ETPs and ETNs on the VIX. Um, so VXX and UVXY and traded through the SVXY collapse, which was wild and crazy. Um, and we did all kinds of, uh, you know, like calendar ball trades where we'd be long and short VXX and UVXY and these different pairs trades. Um, and it was great and ultimately watched some of that industry really start to develop and also uh, watch some of the margins start to, I won't say collapse, but certainly get compressed. Um, so I made an exit, which was, was great for me when did the, the traveling thing for a couple of years. Uh, and then got roped back in because uh, crypto was the hot thing. And uh, one of the, the guys that I'd worked with in um, at Prana Capital called me up and was like, hey, we're, we're launching a, a crypto fund. And, you know, I think it'd be great to uh, help us, you know, launch it. And uh, so we founded Two Prime and uh, have since, you know, grown the fund to about 200 million in assets. And uh, we focus specifically on the derivative side. So hopefully bringing a little bit more of a, uh, a niche approach to managing crypto, not just necessarily long spot, but um, using that spot as collateral to then trade the volatility space and generate yield and generate alpha for investors. That's awesome. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I'd love to dig a little bit into some of these strategies because obviously yeah. what we're doing now in crypto or what you're doing in the crypto derivative space is fascinating. We'll probably end there but uh before that the yeah. vix etps are are also like a very sophisticated product with a lot of insights and before that you did the family office and you kind of did binary kind of uh trade yeah. trade ideas so is that something like earnings are coming out they're implying this type of movement so i'm either going to sell 
a call spread or buy a call spread and play this earnings event? Is that kind of the yeah, idea? Yeah, exactly. So we would do everything. Earnings were a huge part of what we did. And we would usually do, it was kind of a, a strategy where we would look at the implied balls across the board, find the best implied balls with the best liquidity. And then we'd go in usually short, you know, a bunch of different strangles. Um, you know, we probably hit on 80% of those. We look at the implied move on the binary event. Uh, we manage the ones that didn't work or we just immediately close them. Um, but, you know, if, for anybody that's in the ball space, you basically you're playing the math on these things. And, uh, you know, you look for different concentration risk and that kind of stuff. But uh, it, was, it was a great strategy. And um, I think the challenge in that was it's kind of like having a lot of plates spinning all at once. So you're certainly if you're trying to hedge these things, it becomes, uh, you know, difficult because you're in literally every sector of the market if you're trading the S&P 500. Um, but it was a great learning experience for me because that was where uh, I learned a lot about, you know, when is it ideal to be long and short ball? Uh, we did a lot of, you know, statistical analysis on how to rank volatility and applied balls and all these things. So it was really a, a huge, you know, sort of learning experience for me. And then uh, from that, we said, why don't we take everything we've learned about trading 500 different equities and then take it into something very specific that is literally trading ball and then ball of ball. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, that was, that was the beginning of my really deep dive into to the volatility space. That's fantastic. And did you have, yeah. a, I guess, did you have like a mentor there at the family office where you, did you start as a junior and, and work under a senior and finally? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So we had, um, there was probably six traders on the desk, sort of the uh, head of the family office was a longtime derivative trader uh, named Brent Robertson. Um, and he, you know, managed probably the largest pool of the assets, but they had around 150 million under management. And, um, you know, before that, I was very focused on like technical analysis and you know looking at fundamentals and oh these companies are going to beat and all this stuff and trying to predict price movement and i think the thing that really flipped for me like the switch really flipped on was like predicting price movement is such a arbitrary game to try and play um sort of like there's this you know the, it's the the witch's cauldron of trying to put all the things in and then say i know the direction and think that you're smart if it goes the way you thought it would and you you know you feel immediately stupid if it doesn't but then predicting fall is a much more um you know sort of concrete science in the sense that it's a mean reverting asset class there's limits to basically what the highs and lows can be it tends to operate in some sort of range uh it doesn't mean that it can go outside of that but you can do a lot better um, data analytics on it and we can look at the probabilities of mean reversion and then you could get paid for that ball um, so it's a much more mathematical bet versus, you know, trying to read the, the tea leaves and say like, oh, you know, Priceline or Booking.com or whatever is, oh, that's good. They're going to be travels doing, you know, that was like the, you know, that's the, the way yeah, I think everybody starts is they do that fundamental analysis. And at least for me, not to take away from that, it became a much more enjoyable experience to try and think about when things are mispriced and the ball um, markets versus, you know, uh, under or overvalued in a fundamental analysis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's one of those games where it's like there's such a, a knowledge 
necessary knowledge that you have to have that it creates a little bit yeah. of a buffer around people kind of yeah. taking your strategy yeah, so there, easily. There's a little bit more of a moat. I mean, it's it's funny because if you talk to folks in the derivative space, it's like you're speaking a foreign language to you know to most, I'll say, equity or or traditional asset managers because you speak Greeks, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a pretty steep learning curve. I, I know because not only I've gone through it, but I've tried to, you know, teach other people and bring them up as a mentor. Um, and you know, there's no quick switch that flips when you tell them that you're selling an out of the money call. And the thing that you're collecting is the extrinsic value of that premium that is based on the volatility of the underlying. And they're like, what the heck are you talking about? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, learning that has to happen and, there's a natural moat there, but I think also when you find out uh, once you're in that game, you're also trading with or against some of the smartest people in the room. Uh, so it's by no means an easy game or, you know, it doesn't mean it's any easier. You just trading a different asset class. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then to complicate things a little bit more, like there's these VIX asset. Well, there's the VIX and then there's instruments traded against the VIX and then there's an asset right. class of VIX ETPs. Maybe we could just jump into that and can you give a brief overview of like what was your catalyst for the transition to this to this product? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I mean, you know, I think the biggest thing for me as I started to develop a better sense of what really worked in the space was um, focusing more and more on volatility as an asset, as a pure asset class versus um, as part of a, you know, say an equity asset that had these same sort of exogenous risks where, you know, if we would play um, a binary event like earnings or an FOMC event, you're still bringing in a lot of exogenous variables that you can't control and can't predict. You know, you can beat, you can surprise and you can go outside of these, whatever you want to call them, these mathematical boundaries or predictions. And what you end up doing is trying to hedge a lot of positions and, you know, you have too many sort of plates spinning or whatever um, versus, transitioning into the VIX, VXX, UVXY, um, for us was much more of a pure play where we were, you're really trading index volatility, which tends to be a much, I'll say, smoother asset class. You know, it's the difference between trying to trade vol on Tesla versus vol on the S&P. Obviously, Tesla has very high vol, but the reasons are China manufacturing, the price of lithium batteries, whether or not they complete a gigafactory, you know, mm-hmm. the, the list goes on of all these things that are not predictable versus uh, the S&P, granted it can obviously move in, in non-predictable um, patterns. It tends to be a little bit smoother curve and therefore, um, for us at least, it's a better strategy for us to use. Also, it's a much more liquid market, so, you know, you can scale the, the strategies up quite a bit. Um, the VIX futures market was, you know, I mean, you're talking notional values that are multiples that you know exponentially higher than any single um, you know equity underlying. So for us, those were all the reasons we you know we looked at this as like, hey, this is a pure play. Let's really narrow our focus. There wasn't a lot of guys doing it. This was 2014 when we really started the strategy. Um, so we were again, we were very niche in that uh, there wasn't a lot of people looking at doing sort of like these ball arbor um, long short ball strategies. So. You know, that was that was where we wanted to, to play. And, and I mean, I, I loved it. Yeah, that's a great point. 2014 is super early for those who are kind of new to the space. The VIX created 2004 
And I think the VIX, yeah. the first VIX futures maybe were in 2007, if I, if I remember yeah, right. Seven, yeah, I mean, they came at the time, obviously, when everybody needed them, which was around seven, eight, <laughs> I think, is when they really got very popular, obviously. Right, so, uh, you know, it's not surprising that those things coincide. But, but yeah, that's when it really took off. And, you know, even, I mean, there were guys that are earlier to the game than us, of course, but it was still a relatively niche industry you know, and um, that was one of, I think, our sort of natural advantages is that we, we understood that earlier. Yeah, and then we have all these ETFs or exchange-traded products built on top of VIX futures. So if anyone's new to this and has never seen UVXY, you know, look at a five-year chart of UVXY, and you'll quickly notice that it tends to go down a lot um, because Correct. the cost of carrying vol is expensive. So. When, yeah. you're, when you're trading these products, is it more complicated than just buying put spreads on UVXY and then collecting oh, uh, over and over again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the easiest thesis, and this was obviously part of how we, we sort of launched, was like, look, the trade here is very obvious. If you look at that chart, it, it, it's built to go down. The thing that you're really trying to avoid is those temporary spikes that go up. So, you know, our strategy was focused on identifying different volatility regimes, um, you know, and, and honestly, buying puts or put spreads on VXX, UVXY, VIX futures, whatever, tended to be not very profitable because you end up paying too much for the ball itself um, because everybody wants to buy those puts. And what tends to happen if you, you know, go sideways or whatever is you end up losing because you pay too much for the implied ball. Um, so there's a combination. You're, you're either selling call spreads to buy put spreads. We would identify different areas where you would want to be, uh, do things like long VXX versus short UVXY. So we'd be VXX is a 1X and UVXY was a 2X. So we would look for the implied ball differential in there and try and trade those different pairs. Um, so there's, and you know, the, the number of ways that you could trade it was infinite. The, the longer we spent in that uh, industry, the ideas you could come up with just, uh, you know, it was, it was great as a, almost like a creative endeavor to come up with different ways to trade just pure vol. Yeah, that's fascinating. So now you touched on something, the vol begetan event of February 2018. So yeah, one of the things that became obvious is that the trend of VXX or UVXY is going down constantly. So some mm-hmm. folks invented XIV, which is the inverse of UV, uh, VXX or UVXY, one of them. And basically yeah. that yeah. thing would just go up all the time. And then something Correct. happened, Volmageddon. Can you touch on Volmageddon and, and how did that yeah. affect your book yeah. and how did you trade it? So it's super interesting. So Volmageddon, if you, I think a lot of people, um, you know, got caught in this trade where um, what happens with XIV and, and SVXY was the proxy ETF that was traded on it. Um, Basically, yeah, it was built as an inverse so that you could basically go long, um, which and you're benefiting. It's another short ball trade. So it was kind of another way to sort of stack on top of all these other trades, another way to short volatility. Um, but in the fine print, if you read it, it says if the VIX ever goes up more than 100% in a day, basically it will crush naturally because that means the XIV has to go down 100% in a day. It will cease to exist. And that happened. It went from 26 to 52 or something in a day. And so, you know, and as the, you know, the fine print says, goodbye. So people that, and this is true of every industry, if you don't read the fine print, beware. Um, so naturally that happened. You saw the whole trade unwind. You saw the product get delisted. 
you saw SVXY unwind in a day or something like that. Um, and it was really, I mean, it's interesting because it's all kind of parallels to what's happening right now. And same sort of thing. It's like, if you don't read the fine print, you're going to, uh, you're probably going to get run over. Um, because what I think what you find out also as a ball trader is in a way, the market is all always short ball, or I should say investors are all short ball, right? If you're long in a way, that's synthetically a way to say that you are short volatility. You're, you're anticipating things continuing to move up and to the right. Um, but as it turns out, things don't always do that. And uh, suffice to say that if you're in these sort of levered products or these synthetics, um, that, you know, there's a lot of pain that can come from these trades. And uh, it's a, it's a lesson I think for anybody. I mean, I'm, you know, we we watched it happen from the outside looking in, uh, but certainly it was something that, um, I mean, it was painful for anybody that was in the ball markets if you were caught off guard. And, uh, you know, it's one of those lessons you learn along the way, which is always read the fine print, don't lever long or short, um, you know, and, and just uh, be be aware that the things that you think can't happen or the things that are in that sort of tail, that five standard deviation, it happens more often than you think. This is the anti-fragile sort of argument that, uh, you know, markets do things that are unexpected more often than they are statistically um, supposed to. Uh, so, you know, one of the many lessons you learn along the way as a trader. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so you made the transition into crypto vol, which is obviously an asset class that we both love. <laughs> so what was the catalyst for that? And, and what really... You know, what kind of stuff are you seeing in crypto vol that is the same or maybe different from equity yeah. vol or well, index vol? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that sort of lured me in, um, because I will say as the sort of uh, suit and tie, trad tie guy that everybody was at some point, I had written off crypto as the you know, like the the cool kids thing to, to do because I watched the whole 2017 thing and 2018's, you know, subsequent rise and fall and uh, sort of wrote it off when it was on the rise and then watched it fall and felt very, um, you know, um, sort of justified in my stance of, of staying hands off. But I did eventually, uh, one of the guys I worked with said, you really should at least read the white paper on, Bitcoin and, and see what it's about. So that's what got me in. Uh, I bought Bitcoin in 2018. So at least I had a toe in. I had some skin in the game. And when I was on my sabbatical, we'll call it, um, uh, one of the, the guys that I worked with said, this is when they were launching the fund, you should look at the, the ball space because it had really just started with Deribit's listed options in 2019, I believe. Uh, and then this was in the middle of 2020. So uh, I started to take a look and I was like, wow, this ball space is huge. I mean, and this is, I mean, such an opportunity. Uh, so it's was, it was probably me looking in like, sort of uh, like a hungry wolf. Like I was like, I can't turn this down. I have to at least try it. Um, and, you know, and it's been in everything and more than I expected it to be, which is I knew it was going to be high ball, but I don't think anything prepares you for, the type of all the crypto is now is a perfect example. But I mean, I came in when the vol was to the upside and I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, and statistically, if you look back uh, at Bitcoin or ETH, the vol has traditionally and still technically leans to the upside. The parts that people get blown out on are 
it's the short call side um, more than it is the short put side because the thing goes up a thousand percent in that pick your time frame. Um, but the point is, it's something where you have to be cautious on both sides because, man, if I thought the SPX could move, <laughs> this is like, or VIX, it's like, this just leaves that in the dust, which is, it's, it's interesting. It makes you reconsider, you know, the market always teaches you that if, if you didn't learn your lesson already, I'll show you again. And crypto has been that perfect teacher for me too, um, where it's sort of put your assumptions down, remember that you don't know everything, which I kind of love as a trader. It's this process of improvement. There's obviously there's no end game or perfection. Um, but I, I love that about crypto. It's a, it's obviously this brand new asset class. I won't get into the philosophical reasons that I love it or agree with it because I'm that, I'm, I have that too. Um, but just from a financial standpoint, it's been a completely new um, sort of volatility asset class that's been fun, emotional, you know, testing. You know, now is certainly an example of those trying moments where you have to continually reconsider your notions of what is normal and statistically possible. Um, but, yeah, that's sort of that's been my foray into it and obviously where I am now. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's so true about sort of like the difference in vol structure historically. So like 2017 and just spot prices, we have this huge explosion up. And then 2018 mm -hmm. kind of floats down. It's a bear market, but we don't see that mm -hmm. panic crashing. And then yeah. 2020 happens and it gets chopped in half in a day. And then 2021 yeah. is a huge, massive upside and volatility rally. It's so interesting oh, that it's you know, crazy. Whereas equities yeah. is a little bit more predictable, like we're, we're going to crash down and we're going to float up type of deal. And crypto has, yeah, if you go both ways. I think you tend not to break through the barriers of what the implied moves are, right? Like, you know, the, the DOVs are a great example of this. And I don't want to jump into something as, but the DOVs basically collar price a lot. And I think if you do that same strategy on the SPX, you probably win whatever the, whatever the delta is that you sell, right? If you're selling a 15 delta, you're probably winning 85% of the time. I would say for crypto, that tends to be true less often, um, and especially more recently, which is to say um, ball is often or more often mispriced because the nature of the asset class is it's just less predictable. Um, and so that makes it interesting uh, how heartbreaking for some obviously extremely lucrative for others if you can tame or, or harness some of that volatility but uh for me i think it's you know i enjoy it as a as an investor trader manager because uh it's certainly not boring and i think that you know this is my own journey you look for things that are really more uh, fulfilling ultimately and it's not just about you don't want to do the same thing forever um, so I did my, you know, I did six or seven years in the, the equity vol space. And I think crypto vol has a long and it's going to be a really fun thing to watch it um, play out because you're seeing it through the sort of the teenage years right now where it's very uh, unbridled and um, volatile, obviously. Uh, so and, and I think that'll also get tamed and you're going to watch this happen, right? You're going to see uh, institutions come in over time and they'll start to make deeper markets across multiple exchanges and 
you know, that's the, the nature of all things is that um, if there's money to be made, right, there's investors that will come in and there's large banks that will come in and start to really um, create very deep and, and uh, liquid markets for this. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to sort of watch that happen. I think, you know, we're at some pretty critical levels here where you're seeing uh, institutions or I'll say large crypto institutions are now being tested, which is another side of all that was not anticipated, right? Um, almost that you thought that these multi-standard deviation things that couldn't happen are now happening because you had so many people that were essentially short ball lenders, you know, the mm-hmm. um, obviously three arrows and the block buys and Celsius's of the world now. In many ways, these guys were all short ball. They were counting on this up into the right trade to continue in perpetuity. And it turns out that if you knock a couple of these dominoes over, whew, nobody expected that. And, uh, you know, and now you don't have any sort of backstop that you have in equities. So it's really interesting, I think, to have um, what is truly a free market operate with any, you know, there's no Fed coming to save you in this world. And, uh, I think that's something TradFi guys struggle with, and I'm I'm not excluded in that. Uh, where you think like, oh, there's there's a there's a floor here, and it's like maybe, <laughs> you know, it's like we'll find out. But uh, the thing that you thought could be the bottom, there's no Jerome is not coming to save crypto. You know what I mean? It's like there's no Fed put here. Uh, so it's really it's interesting to see this. It's like true free market capitalism in a way that is scary but it's like very pure and i think that makes it really interesting especially from a ball perspective yeah that's fascinating like uh us ust uh the luna stable coins a great example oh, that thing just went straight to zero example. and uh no one no one here to bail it out no so, but nobody could stop it and it's interesting because it has the inverse effect of what is too big to fail in TradFi becomes too big to succeed if you just knock a couple of legs out of the bottom. It was so heavy that nobody could, you, there's no backstop. You, you can't save 40 or $60 billion worth of liquidity because man, nobody's going to come in and they can't prop it up, right? They're just going to go. It's, it's what a bank run, I imagine, would have looked like in the 30s because there's nobody there to say oh hold on we got this guys um don't worry there's money here it's like no this is what happens if you don't you know things aren't right get out and uh yeah you watch the i think you'll you'll see this sort of fire probably cleanse some of the crypto underbrush right now and uh as painful as that might be it's part of the process it's this is how crypto sinks or swims is you have to clear out what was over levered, under collateralized, short ball trades that, um, you know, these guys were playing for the up only, uh, you know, sort of market environment. And it turns out that there's another side that, that can also feel quite painful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the long run, these types of events are so good. It's like the forest fire clears the brush type of deal. And so everything gets built on a more solid foundation. People finally have a chance to buy good prices and become holders if they had missed yeah. the previous two bull runs. So in the, in the long run, I think this yeah. is constructive. So and it, it, that's what's you know what's truly 
productive in the marketplace, right? It's, you know, it's, it's like, how many uh, DEXs do you need? We're going to find out. It's certainly not 30. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. So yeah. kind of jumping into now the crypto side of things and strategies and two prime. So in the crypto world, we've had a lot of bear and bull markets, but we've also had investment cycles on different kind of uh, types of investing. So we had the ICO phase, then we had mm -hmm. uh, farming phase, the NFT phase, the airdrop phase. Um, so there's a lot of these kind of yield strategies that exist specifically in crypto that are kind of new events. Do you guys do some of those strategies, pursue some of those kind of on-chain strategies as well? The short answer is no. Um, and I'll say this, we did, but I think, um, you know, I, I personally always had an issue with the ask, I would ask the same question. Where's the money coming from? Where's the money coming from? How, where's this money actually being generated? DeFi was a great example and still is. I mean, I understand the, well, if you lend it out for this much and da da da, but I would say, well, you know, Anchor is a really good example. I was like, there's no way that this is sustainable. And you can see it in their treasury. They put it right on the screen. Um, and uh, we did have a, a DeFi strategy that we ran for some amount of time. And, um, you know, to be honest, it suffered immensely when UST was liquidated. So we kind of pulled back from that and said, look, this isn't a really good thing for us to do. It's really not our strong point. Let's focus on doing what I consider one of the few sort of organic sources of yield other than maybe lending, uh, which is volatility premium. Um, so, you know, this is something that has existed for decades in traditional finance and something that will definitely exist in perpetuity in crypto because volatility is an asset class and you can trade it and you can generate premiums from it. Um, you know, I think it's still niche to a lot of people, but the reality is if you want to generate yield on what is currently a, an unproductive asset like Bitcoin, um, you know, you can't stake it and earn anything on it. Volatility is a source of, of yield that you can generate pick your target and you can do, I want to make 3% a year or I can do seven or I can do 20 if you want to be very risk on. Um, but it's, I think, you know, for me, it's, it's familiar. So I say these things sort of casually, but maybe for some folks that aren't really attuned to the volatility space, it might sound flippant. Um, but the reality is you can literally find and this is, you know, I'll, I'll say I use G-Ball all the time to do this. We go and look at the annualized yield on the calls and the puts, and we literally identify which call and which puts we want to sell or which which puts are the cheapest for me to buy right now, and I'll go buy the cheapest and sell, so we'll play the curve, and we can go, you know, we'll look at, all right, the curve's inverted right now. We're in backwardation. We're going to sell front month. We're going to sell July 1 or July 8 balls right now to buy July 29. So, I mean, there's all these really interesting strategies that, if you're a vault trader, this probably sounds familiar, but if you're not, it's like, well, you know, how do you do this? Um, but the reality is this has existed in TradFi. Commodity traders know all about this kind of stuff. This is how you hedge positions. You do call overwrites. You collect that premium. You buy puts or spreads or ratios. Um, so you can do so many more things in the derivative side that, um, you know, for us, we focus on yield generation. Obviously, commodity guys typically use it as a hedging strategy. Miners in the Bitcoin and ETH space obviously want to use it as a um, as a hedging strategy, and they do. Um, so I just think it's much more of a 
it's got longevity beyond I don't want to say DeFi doesn't have this. I believe in DeFi. I just think it had to be cleared out. But for me, the purest place to find yield is all. And I'm sure I'm biased. And I don't, you know, if there's folks listening to this, they're like, well, DeFi is going to be, DeFi is huge. I get it. It's, there's, you know, billions and billions of, of TVL locked. Um, so, yeah, it's, I believe it's going to make it. It's just, it's getting vetted right now very hard. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, my, my um, sort of, philosophical stances and purview is definitely ball yield. So um, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so you yeah. mentioned earlier uh, in, in our conversation that two prime has 200 million under management. How big is the <clears throat> investment team? And also do you guys run like some hedge funds have multiple kind of sub funds? Do you guys have sub funds or is it one sort of core fund? How does that work? Yeah. So the, the, Breakdown is really that the structured product that we have, which is called the digital asset fund, is probably about a quarter of the total AUM. And then we have a number of separately managed accounts that we run similar strategies on with different yield targets. So uh, I kind of mentioned this uh, in passing, but we can basically create bespoke strategies where, you know, certain investors, these crypto natives that have had Bitcoin in their wallets for whatever, seven, 10 years or something. Um, they're much more attuned or accustomed to the amount of ball in the market. They want to hit a 15% APY. So we can go, all right, we can do that. You know, we'll look at the different call structures or spreads or puts or whatever that we need to buy and sell to do that. And that's what we'll target. Um, for some of the larger institutions, miners um, that want lower ball strategies, we can literally just size positions down and say, look, we can target 5% APY. Uh, and we do that for different SMAs. So we've got our digital asset fund, which is a combination of basically hedging on the downside with yield and, and uh, volatility premium that we collect over time. And then for these SMAs, we, we create um, for larger, you know, sort of uh, sub accounts, uh, we'll do bespoke yield strategies that target whatever the APY is that these clients want. That's great. And if, if someone yeah. wants to learn more or get in touch with you guys, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. I mean, our website obviously is a great place to start. It's two prime.io. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm sure we can leave or link or all those things there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, we'll throw my handle in there. It's at Nathaniel J. Cox. Um, so yeah, we, we've got Twitter and our website and, and um, hopefully we can link these things in the show notes. Absolutely. Great. Well cool. then, just a couple last questions here before we wrap up. So one sure. one question that I think is really good for newer traders are, what is a good book, if you have any, that you recommend to someone getting new to the ball space that uh, really helps you along the way? Oof. Uh, I will say some of the introductory things that really helped me, it's not a book, but it's a website. Tasty Trade was a great resource for me. I don't know if, if you're familiar with Tom Sosnoff, but he was the builder and, and sort of creator of uh, Thinkorswim and then broke away and did his own um, platform on Tasty Trade. They have, I mean, they're just great content about derivatives trading. These guys are deep in the options trading world. So I think that's a great place to start. Um, you know, I like anything by Jim Carson. If, uh, you know, guys that want to look there, uh, RCM alternatives, I, I love their podcast. So if, uh, you know, folks want to look there for some more sort of advanced content, but, um, yeah, then I mean, books by, um, 
Nassim Taleb, um, like uh, I think it's Thinking Fast and Slow, or I might be missing my, my books and authors, but those, uh, those books, I think that they're not so much about derivatives trading, but really about how to think about the way that markets move and also to surprise people. Um, that was some of the just sort of logic that uh, really helped me uh, conceptualize where risk is in the market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, the yeah. thinkorswim. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of that platform. I've always used oh, it, and it's so good. Awesome. Yeah, and beautifully built platform for options traders. I mean, I can't tell you. I, I, I'm just waiting for that thing to be built in the crypto world. So love I'm, it. I'm really hoping I'm pulling for that. And then, uh, kind of last question is, you know, you're, yeah, you're you're running a a hedge fund. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's pretty much a 24 seven job. You know, how do you find balance, or or do you find balance, or what do you do for fun? Yeah, I mean, for me, everything that I could do outside and, uh, you know, do anything that involves some sort of like exercise, hiking, I'm getting into road biking right now. So in Holland, as people probably know, Holland is big on biking. So I just did a 40 kilometer ride today. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm slowly building up my endurance. So I'm trying to get in. It's very, it's very zen. So when you're there, you're completely present and you can't think about anything else, which is great if you're a trader because it's nice to just focus on something else and not think about the market for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours. That is awesome. Well, very cool. Well, everyone, thank you for for listening in. Nate, thanks so much for coming on G-Ball Podcast. Remember, find edge, capture alpha, and slang size. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Uh